0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 37 and 38. After a time, Martin finds that his absorption in osmotic pressure determinations does not content him. He is lonely. So he calls Joyce. He had known she was rich, but arriving at her house he finds her mistress of a palace. Amid all the pretentious splendor, Martin still enjoys her company, and she finds in him something different from the suave, witty, well-bred men to whom she is accustomed—someone intelligent and contemptuous of ease. Martin begins coming around now and then, and even makes friends among her friends. He spends a weekend with Joyce and friends in Greenwich, where he finds the strain of considering wardrobe— the fawning attentions of the valet, the idle chatter, and the tedium of having nothing to do, altogether unpleasant. He concludes, this is too rich for my blood. When Joyce is disarmingly self-conscious about her pretty people with their gracious manners, Martin is apologetic. And when Joyce asks in the manner of a dare whether he is going to admit that he can't conquer their games— he resolves to, quote, attack the art of being amusing as he had attacked physical chemistry, unquote. He forgets these ambitions when he arrives at Terry Wicket's Shanty Among the Oaks, sentimentally named Birdie's Rest, and listens to Wicket lay out his dreams of turning the cabin into an absolutely independent place for science. Martin goes back to New York with the incompatible goals of quote, being the best dressed golfer in Greenwich and cooking beef stew with Terry at Bertie's rest. Unquote. Despite her identity as an improver and an arranger, Joyce realizes that the only time she felt useful in her life was as a cook in St. Hubert, and she begins to grow dissatisfied with her fast motoring set. Under this spell, she tells her friend Latham Ireland that she loves Martin, and rather thinks she will marry him, to which he responds, Wouldn't cyanide be a neater way of doing suicide? Martin's feelings for Joyce amount to little more than that of attraction, enjoyment of a flattered self-image, and toleration of her wealth. He tries to break her of her dependence on her riches. She tries to persuade him of its pleasures she wins. The following January, they are married, and Rippleton Holabird looks on the splendor with gratitude that Martin is now one of them. Terry refuses the honor of being best man, and reluctantly attends at all. They spend a honeymoon in Europe enjoying the attentions of princesses, countesses, and Nobel Prize winners. All the while, Martin, who was spoiled by the easy affection of Leora, learns about women. While Leora was hummingly content to sit wordless while he worked, and to withstand his neglect, Joyce requires his attention to her birthday, her taste in wines, and her hats. She is enraged by his late nights at the office, and he is annoyed by her refusal to join him on impulsive walks. Yet, we are told, it was a romantic pilgrimage, and they loved fearlessly though Martin recalls wistfully how much he and Leora had longed to sit together in French cafés. Back in New York, Martin enjoys the victory of his new, limousine-driven life over rivals like Holabird and Angus Dewar, and the luxury of valets, cooks, drivers, and golf lessons. Terry Wickett, reluctant to live up to the pressure of servants, refuses dinner invitations. Holabird takes out his jealousy in the wielding of authority. He tells Martin that he wants to see more practical results out of his efforts, and insists that he turn his attention from phage to influenza. Martin, afraid of losing his job and becoming a butler of the boudoir to his wife, reluctantly assents. In the never-ending push and pull of Joyce and Holabird's world against Terry Wickett's, Martin succeeds for a time in pitching over his duties to the Institute and his wife for the thrill of discovery and research. He finds a means of reproducing phage on dead bacteria, and he collaborates with Wicket on his progress toward a whole new world of therapy. He and Wicket find themselves up against a fascinating question for which, if they are to answer it, they need money. Together, they go to Holabird with their demands. They need $10,000 to buy monkeys for their research. They need two years in which there is no demand for results. And they want to be co-heads of a department with their salary shared equally. They expect a fight and are surprised when Holabird exceeds to it all. They expect a catch, but for a year of divine work, they don't encounter one. Between the exhaustion of his fervent devotion to their work, and the exasperation of Joyce's raging over his neglect, this is Lewis says the most difficult period of Martin's life. As soon as Martin and Wicket begin to see success, Holabird descends on them with laurels and fury, demanding that they publish their results. For Terry, the blessed moment has arrived; he quits but for Martin, it is not so simple. He plans to resign, too, and he tells Joyce gleefully that he is free because he is at last worked up to something that's worth being free for. And she tells him she's pregnant. Martin doesn't resign. The next of my posts was called On Joyce Lanyon. If you listen to the audio of these chapters, you might have heard the irrepressible and exasperated sigh that I let out at their conclusion. I don't want to alienate everyone from this novel entirely by focusing so heavily on my criticisms just as it is coming to a close, but personally, I find virtually everything about the Joyce Lanyon plot irritating. First. My overwhelming reaction to being forced to endure the details of Martin's ambivalent and self-doubtful relationship with Joyce is… again. There seems to me nothing essentially new about her hazards and allure. He has overcome the pull of wealth at the Roundsfield Clinic. He has learned the vacuity of elite society with Madeline Fox. He has experienced the dangers of flattering female attention— with Orchid. We have seen him continually and sometimes aggravatingly wax and wane in his devotion to his ideals, but at least each new challenge had its own distinct identity. Not so, in my opinion, for his relationship with Joyce. And as such, I find suffering their story intolerable. Second, I find Martin's attraction to Joyce utterly unconvincing she was inoffensive, if uninteresting, in St. Hubert. Back on her home turf, she's unbearable. Her social world that includes the likes of the superficial and self-important Latham Ireland, her desire that he set his mind to mastering bridge and golf and fancy dinner talk, her purposeless causes as an arranger, her abstracted enjoyment of the respect paid to her man an enjoyment that would be heightened if only he could be knighted, and her bitterness and resentment when he devotes himself to his research rather than to the duties of a husband. I found it implausible that even Martin, for all his faults, would fall for this woman, much less marry her. And Lewis doesn't even work very hard to make it plausible. He resorts to abstract assertions that contradict the concretes, after the description of a honeymoon that includes Joyce's tight-lipped rage when Martin gets caught up at the Pasture Institute, her emphasis that she could kill a man who overlooked her, and her demand that he buy and wear spats, among other things, we are told, quote, but for all their differences, it was a romantic pilgrimage, unquote, and that they, quote, showed each other all the eagernesses of their minds, unquote. My reaction upon reading those words was an incredulous, what and how? So, when, just at the moment that Wicked is ready to strike off and start an entirely independent lab, and Martin feels he has finally found the freedom he's always been seeking, Joyce announces that she is pregnant, I felt like I'd had enough. I wonder if any of you feel the same way. Many of Martin's ordeals have been exasperating, but I think Joyce Lanyon is too much. And the last of my posts was called Some Favorites. I fear I've run the risk of being so negative that you might understandably ask, then why did you have us read this book? But I can assure you that even in light of my frustrations, I'm deeply glad that I've read it, and read it with careful attention. I'm glad for the painstaking working out of a man's conflict, existential and psychological, between a commitment to the ideals of truth and science and the pull of practical material success. I'm grateful for the penetratingly insightful characterization of arrangers like Capitola McGurk, of public health do-gooders like Pickerbaugh, of manipulative flirts like Orchid, of pretentious social climbers like Angus Stewart, and so, so many more. We can all now claim in our literary repertoire a vast array of captivatingly drawn types. And I've enjoyed, repeatedly and endlessly, Lewis's talent at turns of phrase that give vivid and palpable life to the objects of their description. So, to end on a more positive note, let's focus on a few gems from these chapters. I loved his description of the charmless and undifferentiated perfection of palaces, which in their grand austerity and absence of the personal touch, are all essentially alike and unlikable. Whether or not this is a universal truth, it is an astute and relatable observation, and well made. Quote, Hers was a palace, and palaces, whether they are such very little ones as Joyce's, with its eighteen rooms, or Buckingham, or vast Fontainebleau, are all alike. They are choked with the superfluities of pride. They are so complete that one does not remember small endearing charms. They are indistinguishable in their common feeling of polite and uneasy grandeur. They are therefore altogether tedious." I love Lewis's power to bear Latham Ireland's soul in a single, deceptively simple phrase. This was Latham Ireland, an achingly well-dressed man of fifty, a competent lawyer who was fond of standing in front of fireplaces and being quietly clever. Idleness, attention-seeking, pomposity, superficiality, I think all these are effectively and piercingly captured in the simple suggestion that he was fond of standing in front of fireplaces. Could Holabird's bitterness over his lost superiority to Martin in the realm of wealth be better captured than this? Quote, but now Aerosmith, once the poorest of them all, came by limousine with a chauffeur who touched his hat, and Holabird's coffee was salted. I read that and thought, his coffee was salted. What an effective idiom. I wasn't familiar with that saying. That's because it isn't a saying. Lewis, as far as I can tell, made it up. Perhaps Joyce Lanyon can't be redeemed with a few clever turns of phrase. Let's see whether she's redeemed in the final chapters.